Hi there, welcome back for another episode of the Mind Your Liberty podcast. Happy to have you here today. My name's Andrew. Today is August 1st, 2022. Today we're going to be looking at a speech from the famous Samuel Adams that was given on this day, August 1st of 1776, on the steps of the Pennsylvania State House in Philadelphia. What was going on that day? Well, the next day, the parchment copy of the Declaration of Independence that's in the archives now, the one with all the signatures on it from the Continental Congress, that was being signed on August 2nd. So this speech is being given on August 1st, and Samuel Adams is giving this rousing speech. You'll like it. I don't have time to give a whole lot of commentary on it today, but just keep in mind some of the context of the history going on then. Back in 1775, there were several skirmishes, starting with Lexington and Concord. On into 1776, Thomas Paine published his famous pamphlet on January 10th, 1776, Common Sense. If you haven't read that, you should read that. I recommend that for sure, but that's too long to do on a single podcast episode. Through the spring of 1776, there were a couple more skirmishes, and the Patriots had had pretty good success. Then in July... You, we read in the last episode the Declaration of Independence, which I said was, we think, only signed by the President of the Congress, Merchant John Hancock. So the Congress was reconvening here in Pennsylvania on August 1st, and the next day they all signed, all the members signed that declaration copy that's on the parchment that's now in the archives, all the really pretty signatures. One of which was John Witherspoon, if you remember, was my episode back in January, February. I still want to do a biography episode and go back and revisit that. That was such a great piece. Also, it's worth noting that at this time, John Dickinson, I think, had already finished his draft of the Articles of Confederation. So when he's referencing the government that's laid at their feet here, the, the articles have been already been considered or are being considered. They weren't actually adopted until November of 77. So it took them a long time to adopt them. But some of the Congress members have actually already seen it. So I'll move right into the speech here. Really, it's pretty intelligible. You can tell Samuel Adams is a great orator, and he's a pretty good propagandist too, because I'm not really sure if I agree with everything in here, but it's a fantastic. I love stepping into these old speeches, the old letters and stuff, because you really get a jumping off point to go do more research about what they're talking about. For instance, he talks about a Warren and Montgomery, which makes me think, who are these people? He mentions them at least twice in this piece. So I had to jump off, and I'll go ahead and give these to you. They were generals that had died. Uh, General Warren died at Bunker's Hill. General Montgomery died at the invasion of Quebec. Yes, the invasion of Quebec. And I'll let you look that up on your own. But you get to see who these people were influenced by, who Samuel Adams, who the founders, the revolutionaries were influenced by. They reference Locke, among others. And they quote uh, contemporary pieces, like he quotes a piece that I looked up was from uh, Richard Price that was published over in Britain. I'll go ahead and drop that in the link since I already found it. I'll drop that in the description down below. But on top of learning wh what influenced these people, what they were thinking like, I think there's a lot just like all the things I've covered in this podcast so far, all the historical documents, I think there is a certain applicableness, applicability to today. Some of the fears that he had of, or the uh, hypotheticals of what Great Britain could turn into if they were to stay with Great Britain, well, that's actually pretty similar to what we're in today. 
So it's just interesting to think about. I'm not going to give you any more commentary. Really, I was running right down to the wire this morning to get this speech recorded. I've wanted to do it for a couple years now, and here it snuck up on me again. So I went ahead and cranked it out. I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's beneficial to you. This speech is called American Independence. Countrymen and Brethren, I would gladly have declined an honor to which I find myself unequal. I have not the calmness and impartiality which the infinite importance of this occasion demands. I will not deny the charge of my enemies, that resentment for the accumulated injuries of our country, and an ardor for her glory, rising to enthusiasm, may deprive me of that accuracy of judgment and expression which men of cooler passions may possess. Let me beseech you, then, to hear me with caution, to examine without prejudice, and to correct the mistakes into which I may be hurried by my zeal. Truth loves an appeal to the common sense of mankind. Your unperverted understandings can best determine on subjects of a practical nature. The positions and plans which are said to be above the comprehension of the multitude may always be suspected to be visionary and fruitless. He who made all men hath made the truths necessary to human happiness obvious to all. Our forefathers threw off the yoke of popery in religion. For you is reserved the honor of leveling the popery of politics. They opened the Bible to all, and maintained the capacity of every man to judge for himself in religion. Are we sufficient for the comprehension of the sublimest spiritual truths, and unequal to material and temporal ones? Heaven hath trusted us with the management of things for eternity, and a man denies us ability to judge of the present, or to know from our feelings the experience that will make us happy. You can discern, they say, objects distant and remote, but cannot perceive those within your grasp. Let us have the distribution of present goods, and cut out and manage as you please the interests of futurity. This day I trust the reign of political Protestantism will commence. We have explored the temple of royalty, and found that the idol we have bowed down to has eyes which see not, ears that hear not our prayers, and a heart like the nether millstone. We have this day restored the sovereign, to whom alone men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven, and with a propitious eye beholds his subjects assuming that freedom of thought and dignity of self-direction which he bestowed on them. From the rising to the setting sun may his kingdom come. Having been a slave to the influence of opinions early acquired, and distinctions generally received, I am ever inclined not to despise but pity those who are yet in darkness. But to the eye of reason, what can be more clear than that all men have an equal right to happiness? Nature made no other distinction than that of higher or lower degrees of power of mind and body. But what mysterious distribution of character has the craft of statesmen, more fatal than priestcraft, introduced? According to their doctrine, the offspring of perhaps the lewd embraces of a successful invader shall, from generation to generation, arrogate the right of lavishing on their pleasures a proportion of the fruits of the earth more than sufficient to supply the wants of thousands of their fellow creatures, claim authority to manage them like beasts of burden, and, without superior industry, capacity, or virtue, nay, though disgraceful to humanity by their ignorance, intemperance, and brutality, shall be deemed best calculated to frame laws and to consult for the welfare of society. Were the talents and virtues which heaven has bestowed on men, given merely to make them more obedient drudges, 
to be sacrificed to the follies and ambition of a few? Or were not the noble gifts so equally dispensed with the divine purpose and law that they should as nearly as possible be equally exerted, and the blessings of providence be equally enjoyed by all? Away, then, with those absurd systems which, to gratify the pride of a few, debase the greatest part of our species below the order of men. What an affront to the king of the universe, to maintain that happiness of a monster, sunk in debauchery and spreading desolation and murder among men, of a Caligula, a Nero, or a Charles, is more precious in his sight than that of millions of his suppliant creatures, who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God. No, in the judgment of heaven there is no other superiority among men than a superiority in wisdom and virtue. And can we have a safer model in forming ours? The deity, then, has not given any order or family of men authority over others, and if any men have given it, they could only give it for themselves. Our forefathers, tis said, consented to be subject to the laws of Great Britain. I will not at present dispute it, nor mark out the limits and conditions of their submission, but will it be denied that they contracted to pay obedience and to be under the control of Great Britain, because it appeared to them to be most beneficial in their then present circumstances and situations? We, my countrymen, have the same right to consult and provide for our happiness, which they had to promote theirs. If they had a view to posterity in their contracts, it must have been to advance the felicity of their descendants. If they erred in their expectations and prospects, we can never be condemned for a conduct which they would have recommended had they foreseen our present condition. Ye darkeners of counsel, who would make the property, lives, and religion of millions depend on the evasive interpretations of musty parchments, who would send us to antiquated charters of uncertain and contradictory meaning to prove that the present generation are not bound to be victims to cruel and unforgiving despotism, tell us whether our pious and generous ancestors bequeathed to us the miserable privilege of having the rewards of our honest industry, the fruits of those fields which they purchased and bled for, wrested from us at the will of men over whom we have no check. Did they contract for us that with folded arms we should expect that justice and mercy from brutal and inflamed invaders which have been denied to our supplications at the foot of the throne? Were we to hear our character as a people ridiculed with indifference? Did they promise for us that our meekness and patience should be insulted, our coasts harassed, our towns demolished and plundered, and our wives and offspring exposed to nakedness, hunger, and death, without our feeling the resentment of men, and exerting those powers of self-preservation which God has given us? No man had once a greater veneration for Englishmen than I entertained. They were dear to me as the branches of the same parental trunk, and partakers of the same religion and laws. I still view with respect the remains of the Constitution, as I would a lifeless body, which had once been animated by a great and heroic soul. But when I am roused by the din of arms, when I behold the legions of foreign assassins, paid by Englishmen to imbrue their hands in our blood, when I tread over the uncoffined bones of my countrymen, neighbors, and friends, when I see the locks of a venerable father torn by savage hands, and a feeble mother clasping her infants to her bosom, and on her knees imploring their lives from her own slaves, whom Englishmen have allured to treachery and murder, when I behold my country, once the seat of industry, peace, and plenty, changed by Englishmen to a theater of blood and misery, Heaven forgive me if I cannot root out those passions which it has implanted in my bosom, and detest submission to a people who have either ceased to be human, or have not virtue enough to feel their own wretchedness and servitude. 
Men who content themselves with a semblance of truth and a display of words talk much of our obligations to Great Britain for protection. Had she a single eye to our advantage? A nation of shopkeepers are very seldom so disinterested. Let us not be so amused with words. The extension of her commerce was her object. When she defended our coasts, she fought for her customers, and convoyed our ships loaded with wealth which we had acquired for her by our industry. She has treated us as beasts of burden, whom the lordly masters cherish, that they may carry a greater load. Let us inquire also against whom she has protected us, against her own enemies, with whom we had no quarrel, or only on her account, and against whom we always readily exerted our wealth and strength when they were required. Were these colonies backward in giving assistance to Great Britain when they were called upon in 1739 to aid the expedition against Carthagena? They at that time sent 3,000 men to join the British army, although the war commenced without their consent. But the last war, tis said, was purely American. This is a vulgar error which, like many others, has gained credit by being confidently repeated. The dispute between the courts of Great Britain and France related to the limits of Canada and Nova Scotia. The controverted territory was not claimed by any in the colonies, but by the crown of Great Britain. It was, therefore, their own quarrel. The infringement of a right which England had, by the Treaty of Utrecht, of trading to the Indian country of Ohio, was another cause of the war. The French seized large quantities of British manufactures and took possession of a fort which a company of British merchants and factors had erected for the security of their commerce. The war was therefore waged in defense of lands claimed by the crown and for the protection of British property. The French at that time had no quarrel with America. And, as appears by letters sent from their commander-in-chief to some of the colonies, wished to remain in peace with us. The part, therefore, which we then took, and the miseries to which we exposed ourselves, ought to be charged to our affection for Britain. These colonies granted more than their proportion to the support of the war. They raised, clothed, and maintained nearly 25,000 men, and so sensible were the people of England of our great exertions that a message was annually sent to the House of Commons purporting that His Majesty, being highly satisfied of the zeal and vigor with which his faithful subjects in North America had exerted themselves in defense of His Majesty's just rights and possessions, recommended it to the House to take the same into consideration and enable to give them a proper compensation. But what purpose can arguments of this kind answer? Did the protection we received annul our rights as men and lay us under an obligation of being miserable? Who among you, my countrymen, that as a father would claim authority to make your child a slave because you had nourished him in his infancy? It is a strange species of generosity which requires a return infinitely more valuable than anything it could have bestowed, that demands as a reward for a defense of our property a surrender of those inestimable privileges to the arbitrary will of vindictive tyrants which alone give value to that very property. Political right and public happiness are different words for the same idea. They who wander into metaphysical labyrinths or have recourse to original contracts to determine the rights of men, either impose on themselves or mean to delude others. Public utility is the only certain criterion. It is a test which brings disputes to a speedy decision and makes its appeal to the feelings of mankind. The force of truth has obliged men to use arguments drawn from this principle who were combating it in practice and speculation. The advocates for a despotic government and non-resistance to the magistrate, 
employ reasons in favor of their systems drawn from a consideration of their tendency to promote public happiness. The author of nature directs all his operations to the production of the greatest good, and has made human virtue to consist in a disposition and conduct which tend to the common felicity of his creatures. An abridgment of the natural freedom of man, by the institution of political societies, is vindicable only on this foot. How absurd, then, it is to draw arguments from the nature of civil society for the annihilation of those very ends which society was intended to procure. Men associate for their mutual advantage. Hence the good and happiness of the members, that is, the majority of the members of any state, is the great standard by which everything relating to that state must finally be determined. And though it may be supposed that a body of people may be bound by a voluntary resignation, which they have been so infatuated as to make, of all their interests, to a single person, or to a few. It can never be conceived that the resignation is obligatory to their posterity, because it is manifestly contrary to the good of the whole that it should be so. These are the sentiments of the wisest and most virtuous champions of freedom. Attend to a portion on this subject from a book in our defense, written, I had almost said, by the pen of inspiration. I lay no stress, says he, on charters. They derive their rights from a higher source. It is inconsistent with common sense to imagine that any people would ever think of settling in a distant country on any such condition, or that the people from whom they withdrew should be forever masters of their property, and have power to subject them to any modes of government they pleased. And had there been expressed stipulations to this purpose in all the charters of the colonies, they would, in my opinion, be no more bound by them than if it had been stipulated with them that they should go naked or expose themselves to the incursions of wolves and tigers. Such are the opinions of every virtuous and enlightened patriot in Great Britain. Their petition to heaven is that there may be one free country left upon earth to which they may fly when venality, luxury, and vice shall have completed the ruin of liberty there. Courage, then, my countrymen. Our contest is not only whether we ourselves shall be free, but whether there shall be left to mankind an asylum on earth for civil and religious liberty. Dismissing, therefore, the justice of our cause as incontestable, the only question is, what is best for us to pursue in our present circumstances? The doctrine of dependence on Great Britain is, I believe, generally exploded, but as I would attend to the honest weakness of the simplest of men, you will pardon me if I offer a few words on that subject. We are now on this continent, to the astonishment of the world, three millions of souls united in one common cause. We have large armies, well-disciplined and appointed, with commanders inferior to none in military skill, and superior in activity and zeal. We are furnished with arsenals and stores, beyond our most sanguine expectations, and foreign nations are waiting to crown our success by their alliances. There are instances of, I would say, an almost astonishing providence in our favor. Our success has staggered our enemies, and has almost given faith to infidels so that we may truly say it is not our own arm which has saved us. The hand of heaven appears to have led us on to be, perhaps, humble instruments and means in the great providential dispensation which is completing. We have fled from the political Sodom. Let us not look back, lest we perish and become a monument of infamy and derision to the world. For can we ever expect more unanimity and a better preparation for defense, more infatuation of counsel among our enemies, and more valor and zeal among ourselves, the same force and resistance which are sufficient to procure us our liberties will secure us a glorious independence and support us in the dignity of free, imperial states. 
We cannot suppose that our opposition has made a corrupt and dissipated nation more friendly to America, or created in them a greater respect for the rights of mankind. We can therefore expect a restoration and establishment of our privileges, and a compensation for the injuries we have received from their want of power, from their fears, and not from their virtues. The unanimity and valor which will effect an honorable peace can render a future contest for our liberties unnecessary. He who has strength to chain down the wolf is a madman if he lets him loose without drawing his teeth and paring his nails. From the day on which an accommodation takes place between England and America, on any other terms than as independent states, I shall date the ruin of this country. A politic minister will study to lull us into security by granting us the full extent of our petitions. The warm sunshine of influence would melt down the virtue which the violence of the storm rendered more firm and unyielding. In a state of tranquility, wealth, and luxury, our descendants would forget the arts of war and the noble activity and zeal which made their ancestors invincible. Every art of corruption would be employed to loosen the bond of union which renders our assistance formidable. When the spirit of liberty which now animates our hearts and gives success to our arms is extinct, our numbers will accelerate our ruin and render us easier victims to tyranny. Ye abandoned minions of an infatuated ministry, if peradventure any should yet remain among us, remember that a Warren and Montgomery are numbered among the dead. Contemplate the mangled bodies of our countrymen, and then say, what should be the reward of such sacrifices? Bid us and our posterity bow the knee, supplicate the friendship, and plow and sow and reap, to glut the avarice of the men who have let loose on us the dogs of war to riot in our blood, and to hunt us from the face of the earth? If ye love wealth better than liberty, the tranquility of servitude than the animating contest of freedom, go from us in peace. We ask not your counsels or arms. Crouch down and lick the hands which feed you. May your chains set lightly upon you, and may posterity forget that ye were our countrymen. To unite the supremacy of Great Britain and the liberty of America is utterly impossible. So vast a continent, and of such a distance from the seat of empire, will every day grow more unmanageable. The motion of so unwieldy a body cannot be directed with any dispatch and uniformity without committing to the Parliament of Great Britain powers inconsistent with our freedom. The authority and force, which would be absolutely necessary for the preservation of peace and the good order of this continent, would put all our valuable rights within the reach of that nation. As the administration of government requires firmer and more numerous supports in the proportion to its extent, the burdens imposed on us would be excessive, and we should have the melancholy prospect of their increasing on our posterity. The scale of officers, from the rapacious and needy commissioner to the haughty governor, and from the governor with his hungry train to perhaps a licentious and prodigal viceroy, must be upheld by you and your children." The fleets and armies which will be employed to silence your murmurs and complaints must be supported by the fruits of your industry. And yet, with all this enlargement of the expense and powers of government, the administration of it at such a distance and over so extensive a territory must necessarily fail of putting the laws into vigorous execution, removing private oppressions, and forming plans for the advancement of agriculture and commerce, and preserving the vast empire in any tolerable peace and security. If our posterity retain any spark of patriotism, they can never tamely submit to such burdens. This country will be made the field of bloody contention till it gains that independence for which nature formed it. It is therefore injustice and cruelty to our offspring, 
and would stamp us with a character of baseness and cowardice to leave the salvation of this country to be worked out by them with accumulated difficulty and danger. Prejudice, I confess, may warp our judgments. Let us hear the decision of Englishmen on this subject, who cannot be suspected of partiality. The Americans, say they, are but little short of half our number. To this number they have grown from a small body of original settlers by a very rapid increase. The probability is that they will go on to increase, and that in fifty or sixty years they will be double our number, and form a mighty empire consisting of a variety of states, all equal or superior to ourselves in all the arts and accomplishments which give dignity and happiness to human life. In that period will they still be bound to acknowledge that supremacy over them which we now claim? Can there be any person who will assert this, or whose mind does not revolt at the idea of a vast continent holding all that is valuable to it, at the discretion of a handful of people on the other side of the Atlantic? But if at that period this would be unreasonable, what makes it otherwise now? Draw the line if you can. But there is still a greater difficulty. Britain is now, I will suppose, the seat of liberty and virtue, and its legislature consists of a body of able and independent men who govern with wisdom and justice. The time may come when all will be reversed, when its excellent constitution of government will be subverted, when pressed by debts and taxes, it will be greedy to draw to itself an increase of revenue from every distant province in order to ease its own burdens, when the influence of the crown, strengthened by luxury and a universal profligacy of manners, will have tainted every heart, broken down every fence of liberty, and rendered us a nation of tame and contented vassals, when a general election will be nothing but a general auction of boroughs, and when the Parliament, the Grand Council of the Nation, and once a faithful guardian of the State, and a terror to evil ministers, will be degenerated into a body of sycophants, dependent and venal, always ready to confirm any measures, and little more than a public court for registering royal edicts. Such, it is possible, may, some time or other, be the state of Great Britain. What will at that period be the duty of the colonies? Will they still be bound to unconditional submission? Must they always continue an appendage to our government and follow it implicitly through every change that can happen to it? Wretched condition indeed of millions of freedmen as good as ourselves. Will you say that we now govern equitably and that there is no danger of such a revolution? Would to God that this were true. But will you not always say the same? Who shall judge whether we govern equitably or not? Can you give the colonies any security that such a period will never come? No, the period, countrymen, is already come. The calamities were at our door. The rod of oppression was raised over us. We were roused from our slumbers, and we may never sink into repose until we can convey a clear and undisputed inheritance to our posterity. This day we are called upon to give a glorious example of what the wisest and best men were rejoiced to view, only in speculation. This day presents the world with the most august spectacle that its annals ever unfolded. Millions of freemen, deliberately and voluntarily forming themselves into a society for their common defense and common happiness. Immortal spirits of Hampton, Locke, and Sydney, will it not add to your benevolent joys to behold your posterity rising to the dignity of men, and evincing to the world the reality and expediency of your systems, and in the actual enjoyments of that equal liberty, which you are happy, when on earth, in delineating and recommending to mankind. Other nations have received their laws from conquerors. Some are indebted for a constitution to the sufferings of their ancestors through revolving centuries. The people of this country alone have formally and deliberately chosen a government for themselves, 
and with an open and uninfluenced consent, bound themselves into a social compact. Here, no man proclaims his birth or wealth as a title to honorable distinction, or to sanctify ignorance and vice with the name of hereditary authority. He who has most zeal and ability to promote public felicity, let him be the servant of the public. This is the only line of distinction drawn by nature. Leave the bird of night to the obscurity for which nature intended him, and expect only from the eagle to brush the clouds with his wings, and look boldly in the face of the sun. Some who would persuade us that they have tender feelings for future generations, while they are insensible to the happiness of the present, are perpetually foreboding a train of dissensions under our popular system. Such men's reasoning amounts to this. Give up all that is valuable to Great Britain, and then you will have no inducements to quarrel among yourselves, or suffer yourselves to be chained down by your enemies, that you may not be able to fight with your friends. This is an insult on your virtue as well as your common sense. Your unanimity this day, and through the course of the war, is a decisive refutation of such invidious predictions. Our enemies have already had evidence that our present constitution contains in it the justice and ardor of freedom, and the wisdom and vigor of the most absolute system. When the law is the will of the people, it will be uniform and coherent, but fluctuation, contradiction, and inconsistency of counsels must be expected under those governments where every revolution in the ministry of a court produces one in the state, such being the folly and pride of all ministers that they ever pursue measures directly opposite to those of their predecessors. We shall neither be exposed to the necessary convulsions of elective monarchies nor to the want of wisdom, fortitude, and virtue to which the hereditary succession is liable. In your hands it will be to perpetuate a prudent, active, and just legislature, and which will never expire until you yourselves lose the virtues which gave it existence. And brethren and fellow countrymen, if it was ever granted to mortals to trace the designs of providence and interpret its manifestations in favor of their cause, we may, with humility of soul, cry out, Not unto us, not unto us, but unto thy name be the praise. The confusion of the devices among our enemies and the rage of the elements against them have done almost as much toward our success as either our counsels or our arms. The time at which this attempt on our liberties was made, when we were ripened into maturity, had acquired a knowledge of war, and were free from the incursions of enemies in this country, the gradual advances of our oppressors enabling us to prepare for our defense, the unusual fertility of our lands and clemency of the seasons, the success which at first attended our feeble arms, producing unanimity among our friends and reducing our internal foes to acquiescence. These are all strong and palpable marks and assurances that providence is yet gracious unto Zion, that it will turn away the captivity of Jacob. Our glorious reformers, when they broke through the fetters of superstition, effected more than could be expected from an age so darkened. But they left much more to be done by their posterity. They lopped off, indeed, some of the branches of popery, but they left the root and the stock when they left us under the dominion of human systems and decisions, usurping the infallibility which can be attributed to revelation alone. They dethroned one usurper, only to raise up another, they refused allegiance to the Pope, only to place the civil magistrate in the throne of Christ, vested with authority to enact laws and inflict penalties in his kingdom. And if we now cast our eyes over the nations of the earth, we shall find that instead of possessing the pure religion of the gospel, they may be divided either into infidels who deny the truth, or politicians who make religion a stalking horse for their ambition, or professors who walk in the trammels of orthodoxy, and are more attentive to traditions and ordinances of men than to the oracles of truth. 
The civil magistrate has everywhere contaminated religion by making it an engine of policy, and freedom of thought and the right of private judgment in matters of conscience, driven from every other corner of the earth, direct their course to this happy country as their last asylum. Let us cherish the noble guests and shelter them under the wings of a universal toleration. Be this the seat of unbounded religious freedom. She will bring with her, in her train, industry, wisdom, and commerce. She thrives most when left to shoot forth in her natural luxuriance, and asks from human policy only not to be checked in her growth by artificial encouragements. Thus, by the beneficence of providence, we shall behold our empire arising, founded on justice and the voluntary consent of the people, and giving full scope to the exercise of those faculties and rights which most ennoble our species. Besides the advantages of liberty and the most equal constitution, heaven has given us a country with every variety of climate and soil, pouring forth in abundance whatever is necessary for the support, comfort, and strength of a nation. Within our own borders we possess all the means of sustenance, defense, and commerce. At the same time, these advantages are so distributed among the different states of this continent, as if nature had in view to proclaim to us, Be united among yourselves, and you will want nothing from the rest of the world. The more northern states most amply supply us with every necessary and many of the luxuries of life, with iron, timber, and masts for ships of commerce or of war, with flax for the manufacture of linen, and seed either for oil or exportation. So abundant are our harvests that almost every part raises more than double the quantity of grain requisite for the support of the inhabitants. From Georgia and the Carolinas we have, as well as for our own wants as for the purpose of supplying the wants of other powers, indigo, rice, hemp, naval stores, and lumber. Virginia and Maryland teem with wheat, Indian corn, and tobacco. Every nation whose harvest is precarious or whose lands yield not those commodities which we cultivate, will gladly exchange their superfluities and manufactures for ours. We have already received many and large cargoes of clothing, military stores, etc., from our commerce with foreign powers, and in spite of the efforts of the boasted navy of England, we shall continue to profit by this connection. The want of our naval stores has already increased the price of these articles to a great height, especially in Britain. Without our lumber, it will be impossible for those haughty islanders to convey the products of the West Indies to their own ports. For a while they may with difficulty effect it, but without our assistance their resources must soon fail. Indeed, the West India Islands appear as the necessary appendages to this our empire. They must owe their support to it, and ere long, I doubt not, some of them will from a necessity wish to enjoy the benefit of our protection. These natural advantages will enable us to remain independent of the world, or make it the interest of European powers to court our alliance, and aid in protecting us against the invasion of others. What argument, therefore, do we want to show the equity of our conduct, or motive of interest to recommend it to our prudence? Nature points out the path, and our enemies have obliged us to pursue it. If there is any man so base or so weak as to prefer a dependence on Great Britain to the dignity and happiness of living a member of a free and independent nation— let me tell him that necessity now demands what the generous principle of patriotism should have dictated. We have now no other alternative than independence or the most ignominious and galling servitude. The legions of our enemies thicken on our plains. Desolation and death mark their bloody career, whilst the mangled corpses of our countrymen seem to cry out to us as a voice from heaven, Will you permit our posterity to groan under the galling chains of our murderers? 
Has our blood been expended in vain? Is the only reward with our constancy till death has obtained for our country that it should be sunk into a deeper and more ignominious vassalage? Recollect who are the men that demand your submission, to whose decrees you are invited to pay obedience, men who, unmindful of their relation to you as brethren, of your long implicit submission to their laws, of the sacrifice which you and your forefathers made of your natural advantages for commerce to their avarice, formed a deliberate plan to wrest from you the small pittance of property which they had permitted you to acquire. Remember that the men who wish to rule over you are they who, in pursuit of this plan of despotism, annulled the sacred contracts which had been made with your ancestors, conveyed into your cities a mercenary soldiery to compel you to submission by insult and murder, who called your patience cowardice, your piety hypocrisy. Countrymen, the men who now invite you to surrender your rights into their hands are the men who have let loose the merciless savages to riot in the blood of their brethren, who have dared to establish popery triumphant in our land, who have taught treachery to your slaves, and courted them to assassinate your wives and children. These are the men to whom we are exhorted to sacrifice the blessings which providence holds out to us, the happiness, the dignity of uncontrolled freedom and independence. Let not your generous indignation be directed against any among us who may advise so absurd and maddening a measure. Their number is but few and daily decreases, and the spirit which can render them patient of slavery will render them contemptible enemies. Our union is now complete, our constitution composed, established, and approved. You are now the guardians of your own liberties. We may justly address you, as the decemviri did the Romans, and say, Nothing that we propose can pass into a law without your consent. Be yourselves, O Americans, the author of those laws on which your happiness depends. You have now in the field armies sufficient to repel the whole force of your enemies, and their base and mercenary auxiliaries. The hearts of your soldiers beat high with the spirit of freedom. They are animated with the justice of their cause, and while they grasp their swords, can look up to heaven for assistance. Your adversaries are composed of wretches who laugh at the rights of humanity, who turn religion into derision, and would, for higher wages, direct their swords against their leaders or their country. Go on, then, in your generous enterprise, with gratitude to heaven, for past success, and confidence of it in the future. For my own part, I ask no greater blessing than to share with you the common danger and common glory. If I have a wish dearer to my soul than that my ashes may be mingled with those of a Warren and Montgomery, it is that these American states may never cease to be free and independent. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. If you've been listening to this podcast, it means you probably do enjoy it. I was just telling my wife how much I enjoy reading these, how much I enjoy recording them, because it forces me to learn the material better, to understand the context better, and because... Like I've covered before, I lit, I get to listen to stuff more. If somebody had already recorded these and made them available on LibriVox, I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast, or at least I wouldn't be going over these documents. There's more in years to come next year. This first year, I wanted to just kind of go over some of these documents I've wanted to go over for years. And then maybe next year, I'll start doing some more original content, some more commentary, have some more guests on. There are some topics I'd really like to cover. I just don't have time right now to develop the content. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to American Independence by Samuel Adams. If you did enjoy it, go ahead and hit the like, smash the like on whatever platform you're listening. Do me a favor if you would. Please go over to YouTube and hit the subscribe button. Even if you don't listen on, on uh, YouTube, do me a favor, hit the subscribe button. I really want to get that 
subscribe subscribership number up on my channel. That would help me in various ways. But if you could do that, just do me a favor. Take a minute. Go find me. Look up Mind Your Liberty on YouTube. Hit subscribe. Also, I'd be amiss if I didn't direct you towards where you can get more content. If you like this type of stuff, go check out the Path to Liberty podcast from the 10th Amendment Center. They put out three episodes a week, and they cover historical topics. They don't just read through stuff like I do. They offer a lot more commentary, a lot more application to modern day. That's where I got the inspiration to do this podcast, really, is just listening to that and wanting to go and look up these original source documents, but not having time to read them. I wanted to listen to them. I found out they're not available to listen to, so I thought, well, if I'm going to read through them, I might as well record them, make them available for everybody else so that somebody can stand on my shoulders and be that much further ahead. Hopefully you guys have done that. Again, smash the like, share somebody, share it with somebody, tell somebody you know, hey, check this out, listen to this, if you think they'd enjoy listening to a half-hour historical document. I like the Old English. I mean, it's not even Old English. That's one of the great things about it is it's late 18th century English, right? It's almost 19th century English. It's very intelligible. It just takes a little more brain power to process it, but it's very intelligible. And you get the benefit because these people were classically educated. These people were brought up reading the classics and stuff, which is not that common today. So they had a lot of wisdom that we get to harvest. Now, this might be my only episode for August. Seems a shame to get it out of the way so fast, but the speech was given on August 1st, so I felt like I had to release it on August 1st. But I'll see if I can't release another episode in August. There's so much great content out there. I just have to have the time to read through it, record it, master it, and put it in a podcast form. So we'll catch you next time. In the meantime, remember to mind your liberty.